the, the level of knowledge of the other was low, very low in fact, and it was equally low in both directions. So uh, in some ways the two jurisdictions have drawn apart culturally and socially. You know, people are reading different media, you know, RT is not available everywhere in the north. People don't tend to look at BBC Northern Ireland too much in the south. So people in some ways are consuming different media products. and. You know, organisations from the cultural and uh, voluntary sector are, are not very active on cross-border issues. We notice some other sorts of work. So, uh, it would, in some ways, didn't come as a surprise that information about the other wasn't strong. Um, but we were, in some ways, I think, struck by how weak it was in some circumstances. Hello, and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Today, we'll be hearing about a number of focus groups which were conducted alongside the opinion polling um, funded and sponsored by Aaron's and the Irish Times, which we have discussed on a previous podcast with um, Brendan O'Leary and John Gary. Uh, my guests today are Professor Jennifer Todd, um, who's at the Geary Institute at UCD, and Professor John Doyle uh, of uh, DCU. And I should say that both of them are members of the Aaron's uh, Steering Committee, as I am uh, myself. Um, and together with um, Professor jo- Joanne McAvoy of the University of Aberdeen, who's not here today, uh, they published an article um, in Irish Studies and International Affairs. That's where you, you find all Aaron's uh, articles. They published an article entitled Time for Deliberation, Not Decision on the Shape of a New United Ireland, Evidence from the Aaron's Survey Focus Groups. So, Jennifer and John, you're most welcome. Delighted to have you here. Um, maybe I could just sort of kick off um, by asking about, um, you know, the methodology of the study, an overview of, you know, how, who were the groups and how were they selected, and what the relationship, in fact, then was between the groups uh, and the uh, and the focus groups and the uh, opinion polling. So maybe we might kick off um, with Jennifer. Okay, the focus groups were an integral part of the Aaron's Irish Times study. They sat beside the surveys and they help us to interpret them. They were conducted by Ipsos Mori um, in the north of I- in Northern Ireland, two of them in Northern Ireland and two in the south. And there were approximately seven people per focus group. The respondents were chosen from those people who hadn't yet made up their minds on the constitutional question. So they represent a swing constituency. And in Northern Ireland, that swing constituency amounts to about 23% of the population and may well determine the result of an eventual referendum. And for comparison, we chose similar people in the Irish state. Um, I should say that in focus groups, much of the discussion is open-ended. So participants volunteer what they think about the topic of a united Ireland. They were given open-ended questions for the first 20 minutes. And this allows us to see the assumptions and values they bring to their, their opinions and their preferences. If surveys give us a snapshot of public opinion at one moment in time, Focus groups give us the reasons behind those opinions and show the strengths of people's preferences and their willingness to consider alternatives. Thank you very much. And they were 
all held then just in, in the aftermath of the opinion polling? That was how you found or ascertained that they were um, undecided. Yeah. And just one other question. Um, you, you chose to have the same um, number of groups, uh, two in both North and South, even though in a way it would appear that obviously opinion in Northern Ireland is more evenly divided than in the in the South. I think we thought it important to be able to compare opinion because, of course, what opinion is in the South is crucial to the form of a United Ireland and crucial to whether or not a United Ireland comes about. So we didn't feel able to put that aside. Absolutely. Um, John, what were the main issues which were um, addressed um, in, the, uh, in, in the focus groups? Um, what we tried to see was whether people had ever previously had these sort of discussions before and it was pretty clear they had not in any formal uh, way whatsoever. Uh, and try to dig a little bit deeper without prompting them too strongly as to how we might interpret the results of the opinion polls. Uh, you know, some of the opinion polls, for example, in the south of Ireland, suggest that people are not very flexible on what might need to change if there was a new United Ireland in the morning. And that can seem quite stark that nobody wants to change the flag, nobody wants to have a devolved government in Northern Ireland. And if you just ask someone a question, and they've literally never thought about it before, but they feel obliged to give you an answer, it's hard to interpret that answer. Uh, it means something, for sure, uh, but what does it mean? And what was pretty clear from the focus groups is that people were very willing to consider other options. In fact, sometimes they contradicted themselves at the end of an opening statement, because they really were just giving you that instant reaction. And then they'd elaborate a little further, and then they might actually come to a slightly more nuanced or on one or two occasions a directly contradictory position to the one they had asserted very confidently sort of two and a half minutes earlier. Um, so that doesn't mean they were stupid or wrong. It just means the opinions in that, you know, please answer me right now question doesn't tell us everything we need to know. Um, we then also tried to find out a little bit about uh, what they knew about the other side of the border um, because inevitably while the two referenda will be held separately and the result of each is separately counted. Inevitably, the two discussions will be, you know, informing the other. Uh, people in Northern Ireland will want to know, you know what's on the table in the South. People in the South will want to know what the consequences uh, of voting for unification are. So the dialogue has to happen uh, in parallel, separately and together. Uh, and, and that's, we wanted to get a sense of, this, uh, well, not quite the starting point, but almost a starting point. And then dig a little bit deeper in questions around identity, what they thought about an institutional setup, what were their priorities for discussion? Did they want a discussion? And it was, that was our opening framework. And I think we, uh, people were quite willing to talk about that. And we got, I think, a lot of really useful information over the course of the focus groups. And did you find that any people definitively settled on, on one view or another? Um, given we chose people who in the surveys answered they didn't know, uh, what was quite surprising is some people seemed to know. Uh, some people had very strong opinions, even though they answered they didn't know how they were going to vote. Um, it, it was hard to interpret that, but it was, it was certainly clear to us, I think, reading the transcripts, that some people seemed less undecided than they had asserted uh, in, the, in the polls. Um, but they were open. Um, at the end of it, when the uh, staff member of BI Ipsos, uh, you know, asked them what they thought. They, they said they were surprised you could have a sensible, polite, professional conversation on controversial issues. They were glad they had the conversation. Uh, they, they were eager for more conversation. Um, so that was, I think, probably the, the big take home is that people had a hunger for a bit more information and a bit more formal dialogue 
than we've sort of facilitated as a country until now. Then one of the questions, as you said, um, or one of the themes, John, was the, the level of knowledge of um, you know the other part of Ireland in in the you know in whether in the south or the north, and you know as I recall, um, in the opinion polling, you know what was very striking was you know the, the relative weakness of north south connections and particularly from the the southern end, and uh, so what did you find? Yeah, the the level of knowledge of the other was low, very low in fact, and it was equally low in both directions. So uh, in some ways the tourist jurisdictions have drawn apart culturally and socially. You know, people are reading different media. You know, RT is not available everywhere in the north. People don't tend to look at BBC Northern Ireland too much in the south. So people in some ways are consuming different media products. And you know, organisations from the cultural and uh, voluntary sector are, are not very active on cross-border issues. We notice some other sorts of work. So uh, it would, some didn't come as a surprise that information about the other wasn't strong. Um, but we were, in some ways, I think, struck by how weak it was in some circumstances. You know, more than a couple of participants didn't even realise the basics that Northern Ireland would automatically rejoin the European Union. People feared that their national insurance contributions were simply wiped away. They'd been, you know, someone said, "Will I be entitled to anything?" You know, meaning, is my pension gone? Is my healthcare rights? As, as if they were simply someone walking into a country for the first time without a history of paying taxes, national contributions. So people's fears and lack of knowledge were were quite fundamental. And where they were confident in the assertion, they were more often than <laughs> not wrong. Um, you know, so. People in Northern Ireland, and we've seen this in other results as well, assume everybody pays to go to the doctor in the South. That there's no allowance for low income or people who are ill. Not that we don't have problems with our health system, but the, the, the caricature of it is this binary opposite, that the NHS uh, is well and healthy and that the sort of Southern health system is purely private. Um, but then when the discussion went on, People obviously interacted with each other and elaborated a bit more, but their opening positions were really based on very little accurate knowledge and sometimes no knowledge at all. I mean, as we know, I mean, from from previous uh, work and just anecdotally, I mean, health is enormously important, and indeed, for those who favour the union, I mean, it's often cited uh, as as the number one um, argument in favour of maintaining it. In terms of um, other um, topics which people kind of spontaneously raised. And Jennifer, um, would you like to mention any of them? Well, um, people in the North um, were very concerned about peace. They didn't want a united Ireland that was going to re, um, reignite conflict. Now, neither did people in the South, but they didn't talk about that as much. Um, education was another issue that again um, there were a lot of misconceptions people on each side of the border just don't understand the education system mm. on the other side of the border there were other issues um, included the economy and again um, predictably people in the south didn't wanted to know what a united ireland would mean for the irish economy and how um, how it would be paid for now, this is interesting. And was there an overall sense, something which has come out quite clearly, I think, from a great deal of the Aaron's work across different areas, whether it's, as you say, education or social security, whatever, that there is now this in most areas um, and for most people, there's quite a substantial gap between North and South in terms of 
prosperity and 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 welfare. And were people aware of this, or is there still a, perhaps a rather uh, outdated notion of how things were? Yeah, I think there's a tiny little bit of awareness. Uh, so people knew that benefit levels were more generous in the south, not overly generous, as we know from our own discussions on poverty, but by comparison with Northern Ireland, they're remarkably uh, so. But they, they didn't, they underestimated the gap. Um, and on health provision, uh, they didn't realise how bad the waiting lists were in Northern Ireland. People in the south were focused on our own waiting list problem and sort of assumed the NHS was much better because their experience was probably from London or the south of England if they had any experience of the UK system at all, yeah. which is you know much better than the north of England, Northern Ireland or, or Wales. Um, so those gaps were there. The interesting thing was the hunger was for information on those issues. You know, not that people weren't interested at all in the high politics, the institutions, the flag, the anthem, but they were mostly interested in public services, the economy, peace, but particularly economic and social policy, public policy issues was what people kept coming back to in an unprompted discussion. Some of the information was about 20, 30 years old. Mm -hmm. So you saw some of the participants from the north saying, um, or perhaps it was the ones from the south saying, oh, the gold systems and the railway systems are much better in the north than the south, which they would have been some decades ago, but aren't now. Um, and it, it shows the lack of contact, the lack of interaction north and south. Most of these people didn't often go up to the other part of the country, or part of the island. Well, as I say, one of that was a, a very striking finding of the uh, opinion poll, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just one one last question about this. I mean, I'm interested in what you say about the priority placed on peace by people in Northern Ireland, because I think some of the polling evidence suggests that a major anxiety um, of people in the south, I mean, along with uh, with 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 the finances of United Ireland, uh, is this risk as they see it to stability and and peace in the republic? It didn't become a major topic unless I I've forgotten it, but it didn't become a major topic in the focus groups. But I would have thought so too. But they didn't talk about it very much. Yeah, it, it was there, but it was. They're more inclined to, to veer towards the economic issues um, and almost a slight distancing. You know, people were in favour of power sharing in the north, but they didn't seem invested in it. It was like for, they hoped people up north would sort it out and they were wishing them well, but they didn't really think it was their problem to sort out. It was a slight emotional disconnect while being supportive of power sharing. It really was for the people of Northern Ireland to sort out themselves. <laughs> Just to follow up on that, um, I think the Southern participants took seriously and perhaps in a way it wasn't intended, the principle of consent. And so they thought that a united Ireland was really up to the Northern Irish people to decide on and wasn't really anything to do with them, um, which um, was encouraged, in fact, by the organisation of focus groups unintentionally encouraged by the organisation of focus groups, some in the north and some in the south. In the future, I think, I strongly believe we should mix northerners and southerners so that um, people don't just talk about our um, jurisdiction, but actually look at the future of the whole island and aspects of that rather than just the future of a bit of it. Well, we'll come back to the whole question of, of future work um, in, a, in a moment. But uh, Jennifer, if I continue with you, I mean, one of the themes you 
uh, looked at was identity. And what were your um, main takeaways from that? Okay, it's um, very common to say that constitutional questions are determined by identity politics and that people don't change their preferences. It's just a matter whether you're a Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist, British or Irish nationalist, so on. That determines the um, the constitutional politics. Now, this isn't borne out at all by the focus groups. And the participants from Northern Ireland very explicitly said their constitutional views were not determined by identity politics, traditional identity politics. They'd had enough of what they called the orange and the green. Now, they knew that other people thought in orange and green terms, or they thought so anyway, but, but they didn't. One participant said he felt British. But very soon later, he said, well, you know, identity is complex here and also Northern Irish. And, you know, you can't just say one thing. Um, Northern participants saw identities as multi-stranded. They saw them as changeable. Um, they pointed to um, collective change. So the Queen's visit to the South, to Dublin, was seen as a cultural moving point that moved the needle, they said. So um, they they saw identity as, as something negotiable and they saw constitutional preference as something pragmatic and um, to be determined by issues like economy and so on, not by issues of identity. Southern participants were quite different to start with anyway. They began being very definitive about their sense of belonging and their commitment to the symbolism of the state. There couldn't be any change in the flag or the emblem, some of them said. And this was all connected to their personal history. One of them talked about their ancestors who fought for Irish, Irish freedom. And this unquestioned sense of belonging wasn't there in the Northerners. But what's even even on the Unionist side. Oh God, no. Yeah. No. No. None of them um talked like that. None of them even talked about history. And the Southerners were talked about history all the time. Okay. But what was interesting by the end, after an hour, um, even the most assertive Southerners um, changed their positions. They heard themselves talking. It's as if they heard themselves talking. And one of them said, for example, um, before this discussion, I'd have been very one track mind, but that's never going to work. Another said, well, of course, we have to be more open minded, ready for some change ourselves as well. So as soon as they heard what they were saying intuitively, as John was saying, they pulled back from it and started to think about identity as negotiable and politics as negotiable. So, I mean, one of the carryaways carry from this is that there has to be dialogue and deliberation in the South as well as the North if people are going to be able to think about what their preferences actually are. Just, I mean, was were the, were the participants asked, I suppose they weren't, um, or did they reveal um, what their sort of likely sort of voting patterns would be? So these were people who in the opinion poll had answered they didn't know how they would vote. So the polling company then reached out to that subset of people. Well, well said, no, I mean, sorry, party preferences are in, in, uh, in ordinary elections. Not really. I think one person did once indicate it. Um, so this is the group of around a quarter um, 
in our opinion poll who said they didn't know how they vote. Now, different methodologies give you a larger or smaller group of don't knows. So it's 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 not quite clear whether these some of these were shy unionists and shy nationalists who you know really did know what they wanted, how they wanted to vote, but they didn't think it was appropriate to tell a pollster. Certainly some of them had strong views during the focus groups, at least in the first sort of 30 minutes or so. So I suspect some of them in reality had a, had a reasonable sense of how they might vote. So it's not the whole population, particularly the northern uh, focus groups. It's not the whole population. It's not that there's nobody out there who's very identity focused and unwilling to think differently. But certainly this quarter who will determine the outcome of a referendum are striking in how much they say, well, I might be from an Irish cultural background, but I have concerns about the health system or from a culturally British background, but also Northern Ireland. But I want to know about the economy and the health. And really, I don't feel like I don't see why I couldn't be British in the United Ireland if that's what was. You know, so they were articulating their position in a rationalist outcome, you know, whether that's the totality of how they actually think or how that's they perceive how they should present themselves uh, is a more complex matter. Uh, but certainly they were very, very strong that they wanted to separate the notion of their sort of cultural identity from the institutions of the state and how they would vote in a referendum. Um, and I think they were internally divided. I think you, know, you couldn't say there was a, a single profile. Um, I think there were people there who were, you would, from reading the transcripts, say, well, they're probably going to vote for United Ireland. They're probably not. And these people have no idea how they'd vote. I think the, all three positions evolved over the course of the discussion. It was an interesting point. I, I remember Arlene Foster saying in a, an earlier Aaron's event a few months ago um, that she would be British no matter where she lived or what under what jurisdiction, whereas she said you could only be unionist in a United Kingdom by by definition, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, turning back again to the people in the in the South, in the Republic, uh, and this attachment um, to the symbols of our state, and I suppose a general sense, despite all the complaints people have about the day-to-day operation of aspects of the Republic, I suppose a sense that on the whole, it has worked pretty well and has been, you know, in relative terms, quite a success. Um, uh, you maybe you might just say a, a little more about about how far people went um, in in terms of sp- specifics in being open to to change. I mean, were they more likely to talk about the flag or the anthem or okay, the language? So they um, the focus group ended too early to answer that question. What what came out very strongly, I think, for Southerners is um, both their satisfaction, but also this sense, which has been there for a long time in the state and other other um, research shows it, of um, a sort of unquestioned sense of belonging. They don't have to think about who they are. They've never had to think about who they are. And they've just accepted this this wide, um, what one could call totalizing sense of identity, where local identity and religious identity and national identity are all kind of merged together. In the North, um, of course, people are, are challenged in their identity all the time. So they constantly have to think about what they mean by British or Irish or whatever. Not that all of them do, but um, our northern respondents did here. So the Southerners, who began by very clearly and almost unanimously saying, no, we're not going to change the flag. That's our flag. We're not going to change the anthem. By the end, they were saying, we have to compromise. We have to listen. But they weren't saying what they were going to listen to or how. Actually, just 
another little point about composition. Um, in any of the groups, were there any uh, new Irish? Not that I no. know of. No, because obviously that's an interesting yeah, question yeah, as yeah. as as well. Um, now, what you said, John, about the you know the primacy, if you like of social and economic issues, that does dovetail with a lot of what one hears. It dovetails with some of the earlier work um, in Aaron's about sort of discussions in, you know, underrepresented groups, you know, and people along the border as well, but, you know, women's groups and, and youth groups and so on. But I suppose as sort of you know, politics nerds, if you can call it like that, um, the whole question of the, you know, the big picture, the, the political future is, is one of great interest and so maybe you might sort of explain uh, how you present, what were the issues you presented to the focus groups and, 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 and how did you frame them? Um, the only issue we presented them in a quite a strong way was whether or not there should be a devolved institutional sort of assembly and executive uh, in Northern Ireland. We, we sort of segmented that for about 20 minutes of the focus group. Everything else we consciously kept it much more open because we just wanted to see if you throw the question of you here onto the table, with no prompting whatsoever, just a what do you think, what comes back in those circumstances. And so the guidance to the moderators was to, you know, not be directive, to, to keep it very loose. Um, and so we might come back to the issue of the institutions in a moment, because that was a very, almost a separate sort of discussion with a slightly different uh, r rules of the game. Um, but when it was open, I think it also, um, it gave us some information as to what direction we might travel in. Um, because inevitably issues like flags and anthems and, and institutions, we'll have to get to them eventually. Um, but we get them at a time when perhaps a broader, you know, unionist political representatives in Northern Ireland would take part in that discussion. And that might not be until after a referendum. You know, it's hard to know at this time. Certainly they're not willing to take part in that discussion. But lots of civil society groups are. But if we can start the discussion around those things that people prioritise now, lack of knowledge, the economy, the peace, are in some ways less high profilely controversial. It creates at least a base of knowledge. Some of those issues can be put to one side. Some of them are simply a lack of information. There's really nothing too controversial about what the public policy might be. Perhaps who would pay for it and how you'd raise the tax to pay for it might be controversial, but not, um, you know, like the difference between the Slauncher Care consensus on health reform and where the NHS has any potential to get back to in Northern Ireland or probably not very far away in reality, though they have different ideological starting points. Um, so I think those sort of issues is what for me came up in terms of how both when we prompted and when we just left it open, people wanted that information, that knowledge, the European Union uh, questions, uh, the euro, uh, things in some ways that don't require a lot of additional work. But on the economy, we do require genuinely additional work. On how you'd frame an education system, we do need more work. And having had that discussion, and, and, presu and presumably also the whole question of levels of welfare payments as as well. Yes, yeah, so there was awareness in Northern Ireland that welfare benefits were um, higher in the south, but but not the gap. People underestimated the gap, and I know from talking to colleagues in the SRI, I mean they were quite struck. Um, you know, when they do work uh, on the Irish economy, by and large, their bona fides is accepted different political parties or, or the government mightn't like the policy suggestions or they mightn't like the detail of the analysis. It makes them feel uncomfortable. But they don't say the SRI can't do sums. They just say, well, there's another way to interpret that data. Um, whereas their recent work comparing living standards north and south and education 
Darren Tarr bona fides was disputed by some of the unionist commentators, including economists from unionist background. So they were, um, you know, their methodology, their data, their, their, their data gathering was disputed in a way the institution really hadn't experienced in the South in decades. And so I think that's an indication too that even those issues of economics and social policy are, are not without their controversy when when they're drawing out unfavourable comparisons north and south. That, that's, I think, where it started to get hotter. Well, when we come then to the the institutional question, and um, I, I think I recollect that you um, you produced a little, two little maps so that people could even just have a little visual aid to what the two main models seem to be. So uh, in shorthand, I suppose, a unitary state, essentially the current republic, simply on a slightly larger scale, um, and the other being a continuation of, of devolution. Um, so how did the, how did those discussions go? I think in hindsight, maybe we made the wrong choice with the visuals. Um, we, we deal with what we have. We'll, we'll have a chance to come back to it again. I think um, we didn't include Belfast in the map that it didn't have a devolved government. It simply Belfast disappeared <laughs> as a city, not simply as a seat of a... Tra- and maybe there was, that triggered people in an emotional way inside Northern Ireland. Um, and the existence of the border representing the boundaries of the devolved area just triggered a continuity of partition in the southern. So I think that first 10 minutes of discussion, we may have actually made it, you know, more antagonistic, or not antagonistic, it was very polite, but more forceful in the way we presented the visual data. I think if I was redesigning it, I, I would do it differently. But it did, I think the, the visual model did produce that immediate uh, response. It it was very clear that if you'd asked the Mugari what you just asked us, um, do they want sort of the Republic and made bigger or Northern Ireland staying the same within a you know, uh, um, Irish sovereignty. With Ireland, Most, with Ireland simply taking the place yes, of the United Kingdom, yeah. the Republic taking the place yeah. of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Most of them would have said neither. Um, that binary opposition between the Republic expanding and um, Northern Ireland basically staying the same within uh, uh, Irish sovereignty. They wanted something different. The whole issue of a new Ireland, the whole issue of um, perhaps one of them suggested, a couple of them suggested, perhaps you need devolution to start with as a stepping stone towards a united Ireland, towards an integrated Ireland. They weren't sure that, well, many of them said that, that devolution hasn't worked too well. And um, so, you know, they weren't that keen on repeating it within uh, uh, Irish sovereignty. On the other hand, I think John's absolutely right that that, um, the picture with the lack of Belfast and the lack of anything outside of Dublin um, would have annoyed the, for example, the Northerners who already talked about being thought of as Northies when they went to the South. Northies or Nordies? Um, th- I think they said Northies. Uh, that's how the transcription <laughs> went. So, and, and that's true in the, in the survey. I mean, um, many surveys, including the one we conducted ourselves, uh, asked the question about joining the Republic of Ireland. Um, that's actually not the language of the Good Friday Agreement, no. which you were probably hanging around at that time itself. I think more wisely, the language of the Good Friday Agreement is, is a little more open about a new, it doesn't quite use a new United Ireland, but it is a, a new sovereign island. And I think there is sort of, in some ways, just joining seems like, well, this is what you're getting exactly as it is, but all its flaws, rather than the possibility that something is on the table. So I think 
particularly because some people I think genuinely do not know how they would vote. Um, especially if they write the questions often say, because polling companies like to know what you would do tomorrow because they think most of us know what we do tomorrow, but we've no idea what we do in a month's time. But nobody wants to hold a vote tomorrow. So in some ways the question, how would you vote tomorrow? Or is it about joining the Republic of Ireland? Is not really the question we will ask in five or 10 or 20 years time. Um, if, you know, so we're asking, and obviously it's hard for people to project forward, but it would be interesting to think, what do they think today about what they would do in 10 years' time, which is, of course, not the same thing. Um, but people do want that sense of distance. And I think the notion of joining the Republic is unappealing because it immediately gets wrapped up in what about housing, what about health, whatever. You know, people assume no change and therefore also that maybe no space is created for a more diverse population. Um, and so I think we need, you know, more subtle tools. And I think focus groups gave us the opportunity to to learn a bit about that, to, to help us design better questions and better focus groups in the future, as well as the information we got in its own right. Just to add to that, if I may, um, it's the academic literature distinguishes between the views, the discourse of state officials, of expert um, analysts on the one hand, um, what, what's sometimes called the state over society, and the views of ordinary people who deal with the state in society, in the health service and so on. And um, what what the focus groups allow us to do is see how, how ordinary people who are central to the legitimation of any future um, state think about the state in society. We're not saying that, um, and they're not saying that they're going to be experts about designing institutions, but they're certainly going to be key to having a viable um, society and viable state going forward. And it's clear that their priorities and their way of thinking about it is quite different from the way that um, maybe administratively um, simple to think about it, either republic or devolved. Well, coming to devolution, I mean, the the opinion poll demonstrated, I think, very considerable differences between North and South. Um, they also, I think, demonstrated differences between Northern nationalists and, and, and people in the South. And of course, I also recall that um, you know, a, a very substantial majority of unionists um, expressed a preference for a continuation of, of devolution in the opinion poll. So how did, how did sort of, first of all, in the North, h how did that sort of picture hold up to discussion? Yes, so these were undecided voters, but but, but almost a quarter of our survey sample, so a, you know, a large mm. chunk of society. And that was more or less reflected. People, by and large, in the Northern Ireland groups, started off their opening statement with keeping a power-sharing devolved executive. Um, but it really unravelled within five minutes. Uh, very, very quickly, people said, but of course, there hasn't been power sharing for almost 50% of the days and therefore power would devolve to Dublin anyway, uh, in the way it devolves to London now. Or the veto was very unpopular. And we know it's, it's unpopular among the Alliance Party, representing not all of that undecided group, but, but it's a considerable chunk of them. Um, they don't like uh, the fact that there's a, a veto, which is brought in for very understandable reasons in 1998, was have been used for very different purposes. So the dysfunctionality of power sharing, how, you know, different, is it this sort of devolution or a different sort of devolution? Um, and so by the end of, you know, what was a relatively brief discussion, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for this precise model 
of a devolved Northern Ireland inside a new United Ireland. And then they opened up the question of, well, maybe you might need it in the beginning just to plan through the transition because you don't want to change everything on day one, but that's not where you want to end up either. And so the people were looking for alternative ways to, br- to break away from the binary. But the enthusiasm for devolved administration or and certainly weakened over the course of a relatively brief discussion. Yeah, and I suppose then you probably didn't have time to explore whether there's any difference um, between as their disillusionment with the way the arrangements have worked and the concept of Northern Ireland somehow as a, a different kind of place which would, you know, which would require or should require some sort of distinctive treatment. Yeah, and that's something in, in broader discussion beyond these focus groups, I think, you know, Certainly my sense of talking to people with an interest in politics uh, in the Republic is mostly they assume devolution will continue. That's their sort of starting point. And then they sort of segue into to represent unionist opinion. But of course, by definition, if we have a new United Ireland, yeah. 50% plus one of the population in Northern Ireland will not be unionist in the sense of they will have obviously voted to end the union. And if Michelle O'Neill, with the best endeavours in the world, um, does our best to reach out and represent a diverse and mixed population. No one is going to see her as representing unionist opinion um, from Northern. So what's, always, what does the devolved entity represent yes. in a context where there's no longer a unionist majority? And in the past, we might have only struggled with nationalist, unionists, you know, a binary, two traditions. Uh, but now there's a much more diverse population north and south. And how do you incorporate those multiple voices and without just locking us into two rigid identities to replace the one rigid identities of the past. Yeah, I've always thought myself that, um, yeah, I've always been a bit sceptical myself about this assumption that devolution should automatically and would automatically continue and that it would be a great kind of concession uh, to unionists. And I suppose as well as, as sort of as, you know, to, to extrapolate from what you said, um, you know, Northern Ireland was created to ensure a substantial unionist Protestant majority. That's no longer the case. Um, so in a way, um, you know, to put it in, in sort of informal terms, um, would you be better off simply throwing in um, your lot with um, with the Republic, you know? I think the focus groups, especially the ones in Northern Ireland, showed a strong view that, that um, you know, something has to be done to ensure that unionists don't feel, strong unionists don't feel too left out, too let down. But um, they were quite unsure how to do that. They started saying devolution and then almost immediately, as John says, they changed their minds. They said there's all sorts of problems with this. So dialogue with unionists, absolutely essential and ways of managing um, unionist consent if indeed a 50% plus one happens yeah. in a referendum, is clearly um, clearly necessary, some some sort of dialogue deliberation. But whether it should be in the form of a, a devolved Northern Ireland is quite unclear. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are other I mean, avenues which could be explored, I mean, precisely as you said, about changes of, of symbolism, um, you know, maybe particular arrangements in all Ireland institutions in the Dáil or or, or, or or in government even, you know, whatever, whether that would be a good idea or not, I don't know. Um, but maybe, and what then were Southern opinions? I mean, did, did they actually care particularly whether there was devolution or not in Northern Ireland? They, um, a lot of them said, it's just pussyfooting about, one of them says. 
um, that um, look, it hasn't worked very well in the north. If you're going to have a united Ireland, have a united Ireland. Um, but again, this is a situation where the Southerners had hardly thought about it. And um, so this isn't their settled view. This is their off the top of the head view. As time marches on, I mean, maybe um, I think quite a, a few sort of policy, public policy observations or, or, or views, you know, could be extracted from what you've been saying. Um, but I suppose, you know, first of all, um, in terms of the, the next stages of, the, of this actual process, um, how do you see that working, uh, John? Um, I think, you know, over the last two or three years, we've developed quite a lot now of, of detailed policy, um, which simply didn't exist there before. I mean, if we were having this conversation in 2015, how could we have persuaded anyone to put time, energy and money into doing the groundwork for a referendum on the United Ireland? Given post-Good Friday Agreement, we assumed that was quite a long distance into the future. Um, and Brexit changed that you know, radically in terms of assumptions about timescale. And also, it's it's conceivable, at least, that before Brexit, you could have persuaded people, so what we need to do is have a vote on the principle, and only then will unionist political representatives sit around the table, and then we'll work out the detail around health and institutions. I'm not sure it ever would have been wise, but it was at least a possibility. Post-Brexit, there is no possibility that the public would be happy with an in-principle vote when they've no idea what it would lead to in practice. I think Brexit has removed that theoretical possibility from the table. So therefore, we do need to deal with people's sort of concerns around lack of knowledge, you know, modelling of the economy. Uh, we need to design what a health system and education system might look like. I would say the research now in terms of educational outcomes, you know, research is never finished, but I think we have now a fairly definitive position on education. Uh, health we don't, it's much more complex to compare even, you know, what is a waiting list? Like every knows when you leave the waiting list is when you get treated. Uh, but when you join, is it when your GP says you should, which is the case in the South, or when your consultant meets you, which could be two years later, which is the case in Northern Ireland. So the, even saying how long is a waiting list is non-comparable. So there's a lot of technical work to be done. So we could with confidence tell people, here's what a health system might look like and here's what it might cost. Uh, but ultimately, I think, but not now, the Irish government would need to issue a prospectus almost before a referendum. Uh, but people are not in a position to make decisions on that today. But, the, but I think it's pretty clear people want a period of dialogue, a little more formal than it's been to date, a bit more structured, more opportunities for it, plus more expert information. And then they will be in a position to say, well, here's what we should push on the table. And so the Irish state has to do that because it's not in the interests of the British state. Why would they prioritise drafting a prospectus? So the onus is to write a prospectus, which is also open for discussion yeah. post-referenda. I, I suppose, yeah, I mean, my own view has always been that, you know, it, it's probably not possible for the reasons of sort of unionist buy-in that we mentioned earlier um, to be kind of 100% prescriptive on, on every topic. There are some topics where maybe it's easier to be pretty definite for the Irish government in its prospectus, but maybe in some other issues it's more a kind of a an annotated agenda almost or an expression of openness on the part of the of the, of, of the Republic, you know, to go with down this route or or, or that route, depending on, on, on what people say. Also, I suppose education is an interesting point, though, because there's one one thing um, which, again, is, is interesting, I suppose, is is class. 
Uh, and in some ways, one thinks of um, the middle classes in Northern Ireland as being more likely to be in this kind of other group and more likely to have travelled south, etc. But on the other hand, you know, you, you look at headlines in the, about a week ago in the Office Telegraph, you know, A-level students in Northern Ireland have the best results by some way in the whole United Kingdom. So if, if you're the kind of person whose kid is likely to have gone to a selective school and has done very well in A-levels, you might have a different view from that suggested by the, the greater public good. So I suppose these are further strands which need to be kind of teased out. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, John Fitzgerald has, has done a lot of work in, in this area from the SRI in terms of the, the, the big debate in Ireland is often about religious control of schools. Uh, but in Northern Ireland, I think the, the, the big single challenge is putting uh, children through the 11 plus uh, at age 11 approximately for, for those in the South are not aware of and never come across it effectively a leaving cert for 11 year olds so I think so yeah. you know, imagine putting your 11 year old through the leaving cert to determine whether they go to a good school or in reality a not good school uh, where their education outcomes are almost predetermined at that age in terms of their statistical obviously yeah. it's always individuals who book the trend in both directions but statistically um but it's very popular among the middle classes in Northern Ireland, you say, that because they get excellent education, but at the cost of leaving 50% yeah, yeah. of the population behind. And presumably then the you know, the parents of those children are maybe or almost certainly more likely to be people who are prominent in, you know, in, in civil society and in politics and so on, I suppose. It's another factor. Um, but I take it from what you say that, um, you know, you, 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 you think it's premature to be too um, emphatic, in fact, to be emphatic at all. Um, about whether one would go with a devolved model or an integrated model. And from what Jennifer says, uh, and, and you too, John, I mean, it looks as if there there are, you know, there is a greater degree of, of play, if you like, in those, those two questions than one might have thought at the beginning. I think um, what comes out of these focus groups is the need to scope out what people at the grassroots level think are acceptable options before we start to define um, in the government what, what is going to be put on the table for referendum at some stage in the future. And that scoping out of acceptability means people also changing their minds as they discuss. So that means setting up um, a very systematic and structured set of processes of deliberation, some north-south, some local, some bigger and um, allowing the questions at the moment to come from the bottom up, not simply from the top down. That would be one of the things that I would take from these focus groups. You say a set of processes, and that's interesting because obviously quite a lot of people talk about a citizen's assembly as if a single citizen's assembly will kind of do the job. And, and again, it's often struck me that you probably need, a, as you say, a mix of different um, elements, um, You because know, some topics are maybe more susceptible to discussion in a... Citizens' Assembly, as we know them in the in the Republic, and, and others maybe require a greater degree of sort of you know expert um, input and, and contribution. Yeah, there might be one or two issues in a number of years' time where it's boiled down to a couple of alternatives, and you really want to get a group of people to really tease it out and get a sense of what the non-expert community would think if they really engaged over the sort of classic six or eight weekends of the citizens' assemblies we've run on issues like abortion or, or other questions. But I think we're, we're far back from that at the moment. I think it was clear from these focus groups that most people had never sat down yeah. in a formal conversation or a semi-formal conversation. And they had all sorts of 
questions. And that doesn't lend itself to a citizens' assembly because you think, well, we want to have it on X, but the public want to talk about Y, Z, A, B, C, and D. And so I think it's, you know, it would be interesting to have a process where, you know, people involved in the health system, you know, nurses north and south are engaging in terms of what works and what doesn't work on the ground in terms of delivering health care. Um, people involved in industrial development, sort of in terms of what, you know, how can you attract, how could Northern Ireland be more successful in attracting companies? Would Ireland change that dynamic or can you do something in the interim? Um, so apart from focus group things, which is more, you know, a random selection of people, I think within all sorts of segments of society, there's people who have shared common interests. And that's also a way where people from a traditional unionist background, I think would be more likely to take part because um, that's been the experience today. If it's a discussion that has, you know, the context of the constitutional change, but also a near issue uh, that's closer to their hearts. Um, and I think that's where we need to go now. It's, it's that broader and ultimately perhaps a citizens' assembly or multiple citizens' assembly, but I think it's not the priority for the moment. It's that more diverse deliberation um, in terms of the phrase we use in the sort of academic discourse, which could be organised in all sorts of different ways. And and if I can just say that that also has to be a systemic process of deliberation and um, some of the thinking about deliberation internationally now talks about systems so that um, there's joined upness between the local um, deliberative um, day and the one with the industry and the one with the nurses so that um, so that systemic aspect of multiple aspects of deliberation has to be developed and that ha- I mean, the Irish government is one um, locus that can develop it. Well, probably the only locus. The only one, yeah. yeah. Well, look, finally then, um, you you mentioned earlier that you might redraw the maps um, or or if you still were to use them, but um, clearly there is funding for um, a, a number of years going forward, you know, with these surveys. So, so how do you see the, the focus group element um, developing. Are there other things you, you've you learned or you might do differently in, in future, John, personally? Um, yeah, I would say that, yeah, to sort of be a little less definitive in binary choices, uh, encourage people to be uh, a bit more explorative. I think what even this small group of focus groups uh, combined with other forms of research that Jennifer and others have been involved in, does show that people's opinions are less fixed than survey evidence suggests. Uh, that people do, you know, a large majority of people will give an answer if they're asked the question in a survey, but it's very hard to determine how fixed that opinion is. And the focus groups suggest, but we certainly need more of them to be more certain, that people's views are not at all as certain as they have confidently expressed to a pollster. Um, so it's allowing people that opportunity. And people have concerns. They have concerns about peace. Southerners are concerned about the cost of it. Northerners concerned about being absorbed into United Ireland. That looks exactly like the current republic and where maybe there are different perspectives from the historically dominant sort of ideologies of the South would be you know, missing and not welcomed. Um, and discussion in some ways can alleviate a lot of those concerns even before you come down with a public policy. The process of deliberation itself is useful even before it helps you uh, inform public policy decisions at the end. Um, and ultimately... The Irish government need to launch a prospectus, but not now. Now is the time for deliberation. That's what we argue. Yeah, and technically, um, in terms of the design of the focus groups, I mean, I know these things cost money. I mean, would it be possible to make them longer or have more of them? Or um, I, I only just throw it out there. I mean, as you think about how to, you know, the next steps of this work. 
you can have small scale deliberation and it's arguable that um I mean, more focus groups on some of these issues would be useful, but equally small scale deliberation, which maybe lasts three hours or four hours as opposed to one and a half hours, wouldn't be much more costly and um, would also be useful and would give the people the, the expert information that they were asking for in the focus groups. So either of those ways forward or some combination of them would be of interest. And I suppose the marriage of the two is really very important. I mean, the marriage of the opinion polling and, and the focus groups because, you know, the former, A, allows you to identify the uncertain uh, and secondly, I suppose, highlights issues of particular um, importance or where there are serious differences of view. Yeah, I'm wondering, I think certainly I would say, you know, more for certain uh, where there will be some additional causes, I think um, we probably should have done them on a cross-border basis. And certainly in the future, we should do them on a cross-border basis. I think that would have given us a different sort of dynamic. What we did was interesting, but I think the next phase, uh, doing it on a cross-border basis, would I think probably be more productive for the next phase. Thank you. Um, Jennifer, any last word from you? Totally agree with John's view that we should do focus groups and or deliberation on a cross-border basis, at least to start with on a small-scale basis, but then building to, to wider. Um, on the grounds that that's the only way that people are going to think in, um, in a really concrete way about the future of the island rather than just their part of the island. Jennifer Todd and John Doyle, it's been fascinating and a real pleasure for me to host you. Um, and I'm sure our our listeners will, will find it uh, equally stimulating. So thank you both very much. Thank you, Rory. Thank you. ARANS stands for Analysing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy, which is the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the University of Notre Dame's Kyo Nocton Institute of Irish Studies, which is itself part of the Kyo School of Global Affairs. It was established in 2020 with the objective, especially at that time in a post-Brexit context, of producing authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research across the full range of relevant constitutional, institutional and social issues. And in fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we've covered uh, a quite remarkable range of subjects. And the research can be found in the Journal of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy, and access to which is free to all online. Uh, the aim is to be scholarly, uh, but also accessible and relevant. Publications began to appear in early 2021, um, and this podcast also began uh, in 2021 in June. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast you just listened to, and I also hope that you will find others uh, of interest um, on our website, which is aaronsproject.com, and also that you listen out for future podcasts, which are normally dropped on the first Thursday of every month. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.